You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we ask the bigger questions about work. My name's Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show, and I have to say, like, my throat is absolutely dying. Like, I've just had this awful cold all week, I've had a really bad cough. And so what that means for you is there's going to be very little preamble this week. I'm just going to go straight into the episode. Um, I'm talking to Teresa Houston, she is the author of this book, Let's Talk, Make Effective Feedback Your Superpower. And I think this is a really timely and useful uh, book. And there's a couple of studies recently that one that found that 37% of managers dread giving feedback. And another one found that 65% of employees wish their managers gave more feedback. And I've been thinking about this a lot because as part of the kindness happening, one of our challenges for the week was uh, to give kind feedback. And I've realized that it's something that I need to do a lot more than I currently am doing. We had this whole kind of challenge around it, encouraging us to try and give at least four pieces of feedback a day. And I thought that'd be easy. It was surprisingly hard. So I'm going to lay down that challenge for you. We called it the four quarters challenge. I'll put a link in the show notes here to the blog post that I've done about it. Um, but basically, uh, get four coins, put them in your left hand pocket or on the left hand, left hand side of your desk. Every time you give feedback throughout the day, uh, move one of those coins to the right hand side and try and do that every day. Give at least four bits of feedback a day and just make it just the norm. Make it the expectation that this is something that we always do rather than a thing that we resort to when uh, the work is bad or the work is amazing, but you're giving feedback across that full spectrum. So that's my little challenge to you. And let's get straight into the conversation. So really enjoyed this. Here's my conversation with Teresa Houston. Cool. We are rolling. I'm with Teresa Houston. How are you? I'm doing so well, Graham. It's great to be here. Yeah. And you're Seattle and um, I'm in, in uh, very dark Brighton. So the the miracle of the internet means that you're you're starting your day as I'm ending my day. Yes, yes. And um, I, but I don't know that it's much brighter here. You know, if you've ever been to Seattle, <laughs> we're it's gray. People complain about the rain, but really the darkness is what's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I had one night in Seattle, which was a really memorable one. My favorite band is a, an Australian band called Hiatus Coyote. Oh, nice. And I was traveling from Portland, uh, somewhere south of Seattle. I can't remember where, where I was going next, but basically I managed to reroute my trip for one night only and catch them in Seattle. And it was just like this, this really rock and roll thing on a, the middle of a business trip. Oh, you, you, but, you, you've uh, been to more concerts in Seattle now than I have. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we go, my husband, my husband plays trombone. So we'll go to either his concerts or we'll go to jazz shows, okay. but in terms of like, a, a, you know, a rock and roll band. Oh, yeah. Sounds- well, I just go to quite jazz actually, but they're, yeah kind of jazz electronic i guess a bit of rock too but they were playing in one of the rock venues on the in the middle of a big long street in the center of town i can't even remember what the place was called but there you go mm-hmm. um, so that was my one my one day in seattle probably pretty sleepless in seattle too yeah um, probably and um and you're not a seattle seahawks fan right you're a are you cleveland browns did i read you are good you did your research you yes go. yeah yeah um you know uh uh, uh football in america uh, American football is is a big thing, and I grew up loving the Cleveland Browns, which is a team that perhaps no one in the UK has ever heard of because they've never won a Super Bowl. Um, but I was a, I was so much of a Browns fan. Um, I'm sure there's some parallel in soccer um, where we would go to training camp 
because you okay. didn't have to pay. We didn't have much uh, money when I was growing up. We would go to training camp in the summer. And when the players were done, they would come and they'd sign autographs. Uh, nice. And we, we would wait at the sidelines. Oh my goodness. I, I, was, I was a very diehard fan. And then if we, if, you know, if we had enough money to go to a, a game during the season, we would go. But I was, I was a real football fan growing up. Well, I think we're kindred sporting spirits because my football team is Aston Villa and we actually shared the same owner for a little while. Randy Lerner was the owner oh. of the Cleveland Browns and of Aston Villa and I think basically ruined oh both. <laughs> both, <laughs> both franchises? Oh, yeah. that's too bad. And I noticed you, you have a jersey hanging on uh, behind you. Is that... Is that? Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's an Aston Villa player? 1982 European Cup winning jersey signed that's by the great. entire team. It's a little prized possession, eh? That is nice job. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Um, so um, let's talk about your book. Let's talk. Hey, um, so the book is let's talk, make effective feedback, your superpower. Um, really enjoyed reading it. And um, we should probably start with your story at the beginning about how your boss tried to give you feedback, but you were both on the toilet. <laughs> Yes. So I, I had been, this was a, a couple of jobs ago, but it was, I was um, first year in the job and, and my boss was someone who, who, who often would let you know how your work was going, but it was annual performance review time. I'd been there a full year and I had asked her, could we, could we have a conversation about how this year has gone for me? And she said, of course, why don't we do this over lunch? I'm like, okay, great. Let's, you know, keep it relaxed. So we went out to, she took me to a very nice restaurant and the whole lunch experience, we talked about other things. We talked about, um, I was engaged. We talked about my engagement and the marriage to come. We talked about her family. We talked about our pets. Uh, but we didn't talk about my performance, right? So it was lovely, but but we didn't get into what the purpose was. So towards the very end of the lunch, I, I see that we're we're leaving. I'm trying to figure out how am I going to bring this up? How am I going to bring up performance review? I figure, well, I'll bring it up on the walk back to our offices because we walked to this restaurant. But before we leave, we, we, we go to use the restroom, the public restroom at the, at the restaurant. And while we're both in the loo, she starts to say, oh, so by the way, Therese, <laughs> you asked me how you were doing. <laughs> like, no, no, not here. <laughs> Because you you know you don't know who's going to walk in. Um, I can't I can't write any of this down. I mean, there's so many ways. There's so many ways in which this was awkward. Um, and she she was only saying positive things, um, which was great. But it was still it it, it was one of these critical moments where um, someone was trying to, and she was super busy. She had just taken on a new role herself. I understand what was going on for her. I, I, I don't think this represented her best feedback moment ever, um, but she was busy and she was just trying to squeeze me in. Uh, but it was, that was, that was a hard moment. And it was kind of funny because then on the walk back to her office, I'm like, can I bring this up again? <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I ask for more feedback or was that it? <laughs> Are we done now? Is that it? Are we done? Oh my goodness. Oh. And so do you think that's because like, so there was a thing um, uh, in your book that says 37% of managers dread giving feedback, but then 65% of people want more feedback. So do you think in that moment she decided, I'm just going to have a nice lunch. I'm going to just get to know Therese more rather than actually, you know, 
do the thing that we're supposed to be here to do. Do you think it's that kind of dread and avoidance? Well, you know, in her case, um, I'm not sure that that's what it was. Um, it could have been because you're right, uh, at least in the U.S. I don't know how the numbers are different in the U.K., but in the U.S., um, surveys show that, that about one in three managers really dread feedback conversations. And, and the managers that I've interviewed think that number is grossly underreported. They think it's yeah. at least 50, 50%. Yeah. So it could have been that she was dreading it. Um, but I think what was more likely is she, um, I wasn't a problem child. I, I was... I was one of the employees that was a high performer. Um, I can see, I can think of one or two other people on the team that perhaps she was frustrated with that those conversations might've been harder. And so I think that for, for me, she was just like, what do we need to talk about? Everything's smooth sailing. And that's an interesting issue too, for managers. I think all too often um, as managers, if, if, you know, you, you've got the employees who take a lot of your attention and coaching, and you've got employees who are just so easy that you're grateful and you don't think that they also need to hear praise, that they need to hear which of the things that I'm most grateful that you do, or here's the impact that you're having. When you do this, you make my job easier. And that's that's the kind of praise so many of us appreciate because now we know where to pivot, where where to set aside our own work so that we can help. Because ultimately, you know, in any job, even though it's not written down, our job is to make our boss look better, right? <laughs> Ultimately, your, your job is to make your boss look better. And so if your boss can let you know what, what helps them do their job or what makes them look better, you know, maybe you're not going to be that crass and put it that way, but it can, can really be illuminating as an employee. Yeah. And you talk about feedback being a superpower and, you know, the idea that a, a thing that you can do can have this you know, huge, you know, sort of snowball effect on, on lots of other people around you. And so do you think that is, do you think that is because we, we tend to focus on giving feedback to the people who are seen as underperforming or problematic rather than um, necessarily seeing it as something that we all need to, um, you know, regularly hear as well as regularly give as well? I do think we need to regularly hear it. Um, In terms of there being a snowball effect, I think that it's one of the most, you know, when we think about productivity strategies, um, giving good feedback is one of the ways we can immediately make everyone around us more productive. You know, if if you're giving recognition or praise, you're letting a person know, this is what I want you to lean into. I, I need you to be that good with clients, or I need you to get stronger. You know, you're already good at negotiating and I need you to continue to lean into that superpower, right? Um, so, we, we allow people to get more efficient with their time. Plus, we're now going to spend less time having to figure out who do I want to assign to blank because I know, I know what the strengths are on my team. I know who's going to be good at that or who's looking for an opportunity to develop. So I, I, I do really think that there's a snowball effect. It makes us more productive as managers. And of course, there's also emotional issues if you're you know, if someone gives you bad feedback, Graham, it takes up so much of your energy, yeah. <laughs> right? To yeah. process it. You're processing it with your partner. You're processing it with other people on your team. Like, what, what, where did that come from? Um, and it uses up a lot of emotional energy when we're not receiving good feedback or if we're bad at giving it, right? Because then you, you ruminate over how you're going to say it. So there are a lot of different ways that you can have either a positive snowball effect or a negative snowball effect in either direction, depending on whether it's a skill you're developing or a skill you're avoiding. Um, what do you think about the different generations in the workplace around this? So there was a bit in the book where you talk about millennials are more 
interested in feedback than than my generation, the Gen X um, generation <laughs> and baby boomers and uh-huh. millennials want something in terms of feedback more on a week to week or month to month basis. Whereas um, baby boomers and Gen X is uh, much more like once a quarter or, you know, once every six months or so. Um, what do you think about the the challenges there of obviously different generations managing each other and, and those those kind of different cultural expectations? Well, I have, I have different thoughts there. So I, I know a number of people who just chalk this up either as millennials or Gen Z um, are uh, less secure or they want more praise. You know, they want a blue ribbon for everything. And so there are some people who take that view that the reason that millennials and Gen Z are seeking more feedback is because um, they have been brought up in environments where they get really frequent praise or they, they, they want that reassurance. So that's, that's one camp. And I, 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 can see, I can see where that's coming from. But there's another camp. I've been interviewing a number of managers and they've pointed out that when they were in their 20s, you know, they're now in their 40s or their 50s. Um, but they, they point out when they were in their 20s, they didn't know what they were good at, right? When you think <laughs> yeah. about it, yeah. You know, you're kind of like, I'm not sure what I, I'm not sure what I do well compared to other people. I mean, I know what I do, but I don't know how it really compares to them. So that really has got me thinking that part of what could be happening there is we're not sure what's distinctive, what unique contributions each of us bring in our 20s. By the time we're in our 30s or 40s, we're, we're starting to get a sense of both what we like to do and what we're good at. Um, so there could be that element as well that any generation when they're in their 20s is trying to chip away at what what are the things that I actually do uniquely well? What's distinctive about me? So I think there's probably, both of those probably contribute, but I thought that was a good insight that when when you're young, you're not sure what you do well. Yeah. I wonder if the other thing around that is that for millennials and then um, Gen Z, as we would call them, Gen Z, Z, as you'll call them. um, I wonder if, you know, those younger generations, the, the fact is they're coming into a workplace environment that is changing so much more quickly than when we started our first jobs. Right. And so just that sense of needing the frequency of feedback to be faster is because I suppose people look at nine months as being the sort of typical, you know, sort of um, shelf life of a job rather than three or four years as, as probably we did maybe. Oh, so very interesting. Yeah. So you're thinking maybe about the turnover, the fact that people change careers so much more often. Yeah. And, you ha- and, yeah. and roles and, and you know, there's, there's this kind of sense. I think there's a sense at the moment about lots of the jobs that um, people will end up doing from the sort of Gen Z and millennial kind of generation don't exist yet. Right. And so ah, this, true. I think the idea of a job for life or doing the same thing for life right. um, was kind of on the wane as I was coming into um, the workplace. But it feel, that feels a million miles away from where a young person is now, don't you think? That's uh, a really good insight. You're right. And when I think about, I, I don't have kids, but I think about my nieces who are, um, you know, 19 and 17 and and sure, the jobs that they're going to have five, 10 years from now probably don't exist today. Yeah. So it's such a good point about how there's so much transition. Um, and I also wonder, you know, we're, we're recording this during COVID, um, how that's going to affect job prospects for people, right? Um, uh, so I, I do think there's a number of factors that um, are that could make people feel that they need more feedback when they're entering the job market to find out like should I lean into this is this <laughs> is this job even going to be here or is my role going to change dramatically you know what which are the skill sets that I should be leaning into so I, I think you've got you've got in, good insights there about about that transitory or transient nature of work 
So let's talk about some practicalities. And I, what I loved in the book was all the little um, sort of flow diagrams and scripts and and really practical detail that I think will just really help people. You know, if you're preparing for you know a conversation that feels like it's going to be difficult, or you just really want to make it as as good as it can be, I think there's just some really just useful, practical little nuggets there that people will take away. Um, oh, thank you. Just before we talk about some of those, um, I love the bit where you talk about there's kind of like three different views of what feedback should be, right? And so I just thought that was a really interesting insight in, you know, in that there's been kind of almost like disagreements and um, just differing views on how to give feedback and the kind of feedback that really makes a difference. So do you want to talk about those three different different views? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, there's a in the United States. Uh, there's one view that's particularly big, and I think I think it's big there in the UK as well. Radical candor has that book done well there? Yeah. So so Kim Scott um, the, takes the radical candor perspective. Um, that's the name of her book, and uh, that came out in 2017. Um, that's been a big, you know, she, her two her two mantras are care personally and challenge directly. Right. Um, and so she's, she is all about, you know, you need to care about the person, but you still need to challenge them and you need to challenge them directly. So she's, she's in one camp. And then there's Ray Dalio, um, the CEO of Bridgewater, um, which is a financial services um, company. And, um, He's he's in a very similar camp. Um, he's he's about uh, challenging directly, just, just with a bit less of the care, maybe. But a little, there's a little less care. I think there's a lot less care. <laughs> he does not emphasize that. You're so right. I actually um, had Daniel Scrivener on the podcast recently, who is um, the chief designer at Square, and uh, we got onto a really interesting conversation where he started his career at Bridgewater and was basically telling me about just some horrendous experiences actually in terms of the way he was managed and just didn't want to to manage other people like that oh it's rough i i interviewed i interviewed one person for my book for for bridgewater from bridgewater and the reason that i um approached him if i can tell a, a, a quick story he was um uh, he was someone who he was at a, he was under a big tent. They were having a big all hands meeting for his division and it was all the other managers. I can't remember the number. Let's, let's just say it was like 200 different managers. So it's a big group and someone's presenting a PowerPoint deck and they said, um, here were the bottom 10 managers for our division and they listed their names. And the guy that I interviewed was listed as the worst manager in the entire division there's oh. his name up there can you imagine oh my goodness i mean i i know the uk and the u.s differ in terms of you know how direct we might be but but still that that is out there for the u.s right to yeah. like say that you're the, yeah. the worst manager in the company right and um in, in any case uh that that it, that captures some of bridgewater uh ray dalio's not that ray dalio did that but it but it captures some of the mentality of like you you, you got to be brutally honest with people. Um, so he's in that camp. He's he's very much about the challenging directly. Sorry, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, um, brutally honest, I think, is it that as well as being brutally honest, it's about being brutal? Like the, it's, it feels like there's something in the culture at Bridgewater which really values helping people to grow a thick skin in inverted commas, right? And so oh, interesting. it's like, you yeah. need to be really tough. So we're going to make yes. it tough for you and you need to survive and... And then there's, you know, a, a, I guess an element of of people who would 
um, just naturally leave from that environment yes. and then they're left with the ones who they think are tougher. Do you think that's... Yeah, it could, it could, it could very well be, um, you know, the, uh, it's, it's not at least described, I haven't worked there, but when, what I've read about it, it's not described as, um, uh, you know, there's, there's value in having a tough skin, but it's described at least the way that it's sold um, publicly is we want to figure out whose opinions are worth listening to. Yeah. And because, because we want to be, savvy in our decision making we want to let people know what they're good at and what they're bad at so that we're always sorting people you know if i need to to talk with someone who's really creative who's the most creative person on the team i can go and find out i i can see it publicly publicly within bridgewater so it's sold as this is the way that we we call who's good at what um, um, so that we don't waste any time, right? There's kind of an the efficient, efficiency element. So you've got the, the Ray Dalio approach, you've got radical candor, and then the third one? The third one, um, Marcus Buckingham, um, and I'm forgetting his co-author right now, but they, they've written a book called Nine Lies About Work. Somebody Goodall. Goodall, yes. Yeah, Leslie Goodall. Thank you. Thanks for that help. I appreciate it. Um, and they've written a book called Nine Lies About Work. And one of their key lies that they believe that we tell at work is that people need to hear the critical stuff. They are, they are, they're in the camp that people just need praise, that people are mostly need praise. They need it in so much higher proportion. And they, their, their observation is that if we're focused on what people do poorly, we're bringing someone who's a zero, maybe up to a five. But what we should really be focusing on what they do well, what they're at a five now. So let's bring them up to a 10. Yeah. Um, and I can see the wisdom in that, right? Um, but on the other hand, just because something's, someone's bad at something doesn't mean they can't ever, they can just avoid that part of their job, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, particularly if you've got, sure. if you've got, if you've got a small team, you need certain, you know, you need certain people to be doing the undesirable tasks or the tasks that no one's good at yet, but someone needs to get good at them. Um, so those are the, those are kind of the three camps. You've got the radical candor, care personally and challenge directly. You've got um, Ray Dalio, who's, who's he, his phrase is radical transparency. We're going to be super transparent about what everyone's strengths are and what their weaknesses are. And then you've got the Goodall and Buckingham approach, which is praise, praise, praise. We need more praise. <laughs> so out of those three, yeah, which would you say is the one that you would naturally gravitate to the most? I gravitate most towards Kim Scott's view, the the challenge directly and care personally. Um, the, the, the hesitation that I have w- with, with her approach is that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're caring personally when um, perhaps that's not how the other person experiences it. Um, uh, she, in, in her book and in some of the talks that I've seen her give, she's very much focused on what's your intention as a manager. And if you have good intentions, that's what matters. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of feedback where there was a good intention and it, it still didn't land well. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, yeah. That story, the story I shared at the beginning with my boss in the loo where she was, she probably had good intentions, but oh my goodness, yeah. right? It did, it, it was, was not when I wanted to hear it. Um, so, so that's a concern for me. And there's, there's also research out there showing that um, about 90% of us think that we have high emotional intelligence when actually it's much more like 10%, right? Mm. Um, so there's a, there are a whole bunch of us who think that we're very good at at reading the other person's perspective. How are they taking this? When the truth is that uh, we're not as good as we think we are. And so that's the concern I have about her approach: is that we, you know, that people are getting away with, you know, but I mean well. As long as I mean well, isn't that isn't that enough? 
I'm, yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying to care, um, and and my book takes more of an approach of okay, here's what caring looks like. <laughs> here's here's what caring is going to feel like to the other person. Here's how here are strategies you can take. It's not enough just to come at it from a um, a good intention. Yeah, and you talk about a similar stat where it's it's a very high number of people who um, believe they have high levels of self-awareness and then actually the, num- the number is very low. But yes. So exactly. I think that that's, that's like the floor of radical candor, I guess, is that um, a lot of people would, would believe that they themselves would be really good at that approach and have high levels of EQ. Yes, exactly. The stats just don't bear that out, right? Like so many of us feel like we're good at that, but maybe we're not. Exactly. Um, and, and I love radical candor. And I think, uh, you know, I've talked with a lot of managers who've embraced it. And I think part of what is so appealing about it is it's an identity issue, right? For so many of us, if you're a manager, you feel like you can't say the hard stuff. And Kim Scott in Radical Candor is giving people permission to say the hard stuff. She's trying to help. How do you say the hard stuff? And I'm trying to lean even further into that. How, you know, what's the mindset around saying the hard stuff? Um, so should we talk about the the different kinds of feedback? So I found that really interesting because I think I've probably thought about it before as there's one thing which is called giving feedback. Right? Right. Yes, right. <laughs> and then you break it down into and, and maybe part of that is the the whole kind of um the kind of shit sandwich model, right? Yes. So yeah. um feedback is all about giving the uh, the the negative stuff as well as the positive positive stuff and kind of mixing it all together. Mm-hmm. But you break it down into appreciation, coaching, and evaluation. So, do you want to just say a bit more about the distinction between those things? Because I, I just thought that was really fascinating. Oh, good. I'm glad. Uh, so I get that distinction. That's um, I didn't create that uh, anew. That actually comes from Douglas Stone and and Sheila Heen. They're authors of a book called Thanks for the Feedback, which is a great book. Came out about a decade ago about how to be better at receiving feedback when you're on the receiving end. Right. Um, and uh, so that's a good book if you're someone who has a boss who's lousy at giving feedback and you're trying to figure <laughs> out how, how, do, how, do I, how do I think about this differently? Um, and so, so the three types, as you, as you outlined, uh, there's appreciation, which most of us would think of as praise, recognition, you know, uh, it's what you're doing well and how you're having impact. Um, it's the thing I want you to keep doing, Graham, whatever it is. That's, that's my that's appreciation, <laughs> what I want you to yeah. keep doing. And then there's uh, coaching, which would be advice or, you know, here's, here's a direction I, I'd love to see you move in or here's, here's a way I'd like you to approach things differently. And then there's evaluation and evaluation is here's where you stand. So evaluation might be here's, are, are, you know, are you on track to get that promotion that we talked about? Or evaluation might be, okay, compared to other people on the team, uh, you know, your, your presentations are, they're 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 the right length of time, but they're not as engaging as as some of the other presentations for people on the team. So it's letting people know where they stand relative to others or relative to the goals they have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So those yeah, those are the three types. And I find it it's really helpful because often people there's often a mismatch. Somebody says, I want feedback, and their boss, their manager will give them like like add a girl, you're doing great. Don't worry about it. So they give them, they give them recognition mm. and they're like, no, I, want, I really want some coaching now, but you don't have the language for it, right? So what, what I like about those terms is that it allows us to get more specific when we're asking for feedback to say, you know, actually, I need to know where I stand. Can you give me an evaluation? The coaching is nice, but I've, I've had enough of that. I need, I need to know, am I, am I on track for that promotion in July? 
That's a really nice tip, isn't it? So if you're talking to your manager about uh, about seeking feedback is just don't, don't say, give me feedback, be more specific and ask for the one of those three things that you, you most need. Exactly. Right. And there's, there's fabulous research out of um, a team, uh, Jai Won Yoon out of Harvard. Um, one, one of the things that she has found is just there's one, if there's one word that can make a huge difference and that is, do you ask for feedback or do you ask for advice? And if, They've done studies in real workplaces where when people ask for feedback, people are like to say, you did a great presentation. It was fine. You know, no complaints. But if they ask for, can you give me advice on my presentation? And now people will say, actually, you needed to move around a little bit more. Um, you kind of stood in one place. Or, you know, there were two VPs in the room. If you had called on them, we would have then felt that that this was, you know, authorized by the head honchos. So it's really interesting, um, just that small word difference, feedback versus advice. So I, I underline that point because it really can make a difference with your manager. You know, first of all, ask for advice, don't ask for feedback. <laughs> yeah. But second, secondly, if you ask you, if you let them know, I need to know where I stand. Can you give me? Um, well, I, I interviewed one manager who has the conversation once a month with his boss. He goes to his boss once a month and says, am I on track for that promotion a year from now? If not, what do you need to see from me? And I, you know, I, I find that amazing that he has that conversation once a month, but, mm. but he wants, he wants to make sure yeah. he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm counting on it. If you're not seeing what you need to see, plus it puts the thought in his manager's mind that like, you you can't surprise me here, right? Yeah, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> this person's um, really hungry, and I've, I've been telling them for three years that they're on yeah. track for the promotion. So I better give them one. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And you, I'm giving you every opportunity to let me know if that's not coming through. Yeah, that's 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 a pretty focused approach. Eh? It really is. It's bold, and it's kind of funny because I'm, I I sometimes find gender differences in the reaction to that story. Um, men are often like, "Oh, interesting. I, I I'm going to try that." And women are like, "No way." <laughs> I ever <laughs> I I think I would I would find it a little bit icky to take that approach. You mean you mean as the person asking for it or the person receiving it? I think both. I think I would struggle with asking that directly and that regularly. Mm. Um and I think if someone was doing that to me and asking that of me, I think I would just I think it would, I would recoil a little bit and I think I'd just be uh, thinking, yeah. oh, give me a break here. Like we just had yeah. this conversation three weeks ago. We're having it again. You know, um, I don't know whether, you know, whether we'll have a role in the next six months or whatever. Sure. There's that too. So, right. You know, there's, there's so many other unknowns that, that feed into that. So I just, I wonder whether it might uh, sometimes be too focused or backfire. A little yeah. Bit. Well, I, that's really interesting. You know, it could backfire. And I think that probably in part, you'd need to be reading your organization. You need to be reading your manager. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are definitely downsides to that approach. I know when I think about some of my employees, if they had done this, I, I probably would have given them the feedback. Like there's so many things I can't control about the promotion <laughs> yeah. process. Yeah. right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but, but in the, in the case of the person that I'm describing, um, he got a promotion every year for three years in a row. Right. So for him, for him, it was, it was a winning, winning strategy. Yeah. Um, we'll talk a bit more about gender uh, a bit later as well, because I think that's a really interesting component of this. Um, but let's just talk, I want to talk about listening as well. And um, uh, you give lots of tips in the book, but just for anyone listening to this, what do you think are some of the main ways that you can be a better listener when you're, um, when you're trying to give and receive feedback? 
Well, you know, I know from your work on how to be a productivity ninja that you're very focused on mindset. And there's there are definitely mindsets around listening that can really help you. So um, all too often we go into feedback conversations with a little script. I got these things I need to, I'm going to say, I want to say it this way. I practiced it at home in the mirror, you know, on, on my commute into work. Um, but but all, what the research shows is that what people want most is a really good listener when they're receiving feedback. They want the other person to be listening, not just telling them things. And so in terms of strategies for listening, one that I, I really like is um, make give yourself two goals when you go into a conversation, any kind of conversation, because it's good to practice listening in, and it's a skill, you know, we, we can use across different situations. But um, Two, two strategies that I really like for thinking about how to be a better listener is, first of all, can I, when, when the conversation's done, can I say what was most important to that person? And number two, that's number one, can I say what was most important? Yeah. And number two, can I say how this person felt about the conversation? Right? Can I can I say how they felt about what they were talking about? That were they excited? Were they dreading something? Were they um, ambivalent? Whatever it might be. But if you can say those two things, you can say what was most important to the person and how they felt about it. You're on your way to becoming a really good listener, and it's something you can practice with your partner at home tonight, right? Or or with with a friend. It's it's surprisingly hard to do, but if you go into a conversation with those two goals. You're going to become a much better listener and you'll be much better at feedback because you're now tuned into, okay, what is most important to this person? You know, they, they, they've been missing deadlines. I'm trying to understand why that's happening. Why do they think, what, what do they see as important in this conversation? That's lovely. Just such a nice mindset to, to go into things with. The other one I really liked as a little device in the practice um, section of the book is stop asking questions that start with the word why. And then flip it around into questions that are about what. So, do you want to say a bit more about that? Because I just thought that was um, such a useful little little tip and trick that it's just one of those memorable things that you can take away, isn't it? It is. It really is. Um, people people get defensive um, when they when you ask a why question. You know, so um, if 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 I were to you know ask you like you know you happen to be wearing a blue shirt, so Dan, why? why the blue today? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? you, you're just yeah. like, what's wrong with blue? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but why, why immediately? And if you get the tone slightly wrong, it puts people in a defensive, you know, they're, they're on their back heels. Um, and so just re reframing it as a what question. So um, a, a one that I really like is, or a how question, how, how does that help you achieve what you want? Or, you know, what was your goal there? That's instead of why did you do that? What was your goal there? Or how does that achieve what you want? And it's 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 more wordy, but it won't put people on the defensive. I, I do it a lot in my consultations. And when you ask people like, how does that achieve what you want? They they go into their goals. And now now you understand, okay, if that's your goal, here's a different way to get there. Um, it's it's the longer route, but it's going to be so much more effective for you. And also, the dis- the discussion becomes about their goals, right? So right. then you're having a whole okay, cool. So if that's your goal, then I suggest we work in this way. So you're you're having the conversation more on their terms than on on your terms. Exactly right, and 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 people people want you to meet them where their goals are, right? As opposed to if you're giving the feedback that that you you did something wrong, it still it seems like now it's about my issues, not about the issues that are important to the person you're giving the feedback to so exactly yeah make it about their goals yeah i love that and yeah, i think use the 
example in the book, what were you hoping would happen? Which I think is just a really good question. You know, like particularly if um, the feedback relates to, you know, a situation or an event where something didn't go so well, like what were you yeah. hoping would happen? And how did you yeah. think that it went? And so not saying, why did you behave in that way? Or, <laughs> Why on earth? Right, right. Um, Yeah, what what were you hoping would happen? Because mm. um, that is also a beautiful question because it gives you insight into how self-aware that person is, right? We talked about self-awareness earlier. Is that that person really aware of, do they have situational awareness? Do they know the impact they have on others? Were their their expectations really unrealistic? You know, they they thought the VP was going to stand up and applaud them at the end (laughs) of their talk. Like, okay, okay, the VP never does that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's a a nice question to, to, to get a sense, to get a read on how um, thoughtful and aware the other person is. And just before we, before we move off that topic area, because it, it does feel so important that that whole area of, of, you know, empathy, emotional intelligence, listening, so central to feedback, that personal connection. Is there anything else you think would be useful for people to take away just as, you know, devices or just tips that can really help people to be more present, be more in the conversation, connect more? Yeah, I, I think the one other tip, and I appreciate you're you're not asking me for like a three step formula because I I don't find the it the first thing when you do <laughs> podcasts, right? Yeah, right, exactly. That's so like, oh, I don't know if I were to, if I had a reductionist approach, what would I do? <laughs> but, but you know, but one. So there is one more tip that I find even even I will forget to do, but it makes such a difference when I remember to do it, and that is to state my good intentions when I'm giving someone either coaching or evaluation when you're giving appreciation. You're letting someone know what you love about their work. You know, when I'm telling you what I love about your podcast, I probably don't need to say, um, you know, what my good intentions are. But it, when you're giving coaching or evaluation, when you're when you're giving someone advice or you're letting them know where you where they stand, it's important to say, you know, I, 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 uh, I want to see you do your best work. You know, I want to see you succeed. You know, Graham, I see you putting all this work into this podcast. And, um, I, I want to help you get where you want to go. And it, it's, it might sound artificial, but to the other person, now they're like, the, again, we get back to this question of recognizing my goals. And the other person will be, um, there's, there's research from Leslie John at Harvard Business School showing that if you state your good intentions before you give bad news, the other person is much more receptive to the bad news to the bad news. So it's a, it's a small thing. It's, it's easy to forget, but when you do it, the other person, you'll see them relax and be much more open. I, I'm definitely guilty of, of neglecting that one, I would say. And mm. the other one I do quite a lot is, um, when you're giving feedback on email and stuff is launch straight in with the one tiny detail that's wrong about this thing rather than, yes. you know, um, actually 99% of this is brilliant, you know, but like in exactly. my mind, it's like, cool. So it's brilliant. So here's the bit that, yes. you know, and so if you, particularly if you're in that busy, um, kind of mode and email, you don't have the person in front of you. So you, there's just less of that connection. It's really easy. I think I probably, um, it's probably one of the main sources of frustrations of people working with me probably is that uh, uh, sort of, you know, pernickety change this tiny thing. Um, email that they get back from me, right? Yeah. Well, and I and I I can't remember the data on this, but I've I've seen studies that we we also have many more critical adjectives. We have more negative adjectives than we have positive adjectives. You know, so it's really easy to be to just say, well, that was good, that was fine, that was great work. But then then we get into very specific details about you know this 
this was uh, too wordy or, you know, whatever it might be, right? But we have, we have much more language uh, about what was wrong than we do about what was right. So we, we really need to counteract that negativity bias. And then the other thing about adjectives, let's talk about the gender adjectives thing. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's a nice little, little segue there, little podcast segue. Very nicely um, done. So was this a Harvard study? But it basically, it basically found that there are certain adjectives that um, people would use in feedback to describe um, female leaders and then a whole nother set of adjectives that people would use about predominantly about male leaders. Yeah, yeah. So there was a, a study done at, uh, at Harvard, I think it was through the Kennedy School um, uh, for Public Policy, but they they analyzed actual performance reviews. And there, are, there have also been studies done in the military. There have been a couple of studies like this where um, they find that different adjectives are used for men and women. And um, the adjectives that are used more frequently for women. So, so there are some adjectives that, that, that are used across both men and women, right. Um, in terms of like, you know, this is excellent work or you're, um, you, you contribute in important ways. So there, there are certain phrases or language intelligent that's used for both men and women. But then when we look at the adjectives that are used more predominantly for women or more predominantly for men, it's really fascinating the patterns. So for women, There'll be comments about how kind you are, how compassionate you are, how helpful you are, really focusing on a lot of gender stereotypes um, around um, being likable and nice and nurturing. I thought enthusiastic was an interesting one. Oh, enthusiastic on is well. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm surprised by that too. Mm. Um, because in there's other research that shows at least when professors are being described, men, male professors are more likely to be described as enthusiastic. Oh, um, okay. So there's there's maybe it depends on the field that you're in. Mm. Um, but anyway, kind, compassionate, um, focusing a lot on helpfulness. Helpful, where, yeah. Helpful, yeah. Whereas, you know, get ready for it. What are the adjectives for men? They're things like game changer, visionary, innovative. Um, and, and when you think about who you want to promote, you know, in any job, do you, do you want to promote the person who's compassionate and helpful or the person who's a visionary game changer? I mean, it's, mm. it, you know, maybe there are some jobs, maybe, maybe if you're doing nursing, you want the kind, compassionate person. <laughs> um, but... You don't want a room full of geniuses when you're nursing. <laughs> <do> you? <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I have had so many good nurses. Of course, I want them to be geniuses, but I mostly want them to be helpful and kind, right? Um, uh, but, but in any case, when, when you think about who's going to stand out as management material, it's, it's probably more likely to be the innovative person, um, or these adjectives that we're using for men, not for women. And I, I find that work fascinating because that's an inadvertent slip that so many of us could make and, um, and pointing it out. One of the things I suggest in the book is, you know, if you're a manager, close your door, get out your performance reviews from last year and look for these words. You know, did you, did you make these mistakes for men and women? Yeah. I was having a conversation with someone a little while ago about the word genius and how oh, yeah. it's so often, um, you know, people will refer to men as, as a genius and, and it's not, a word that you hear a lot of women uh, described as, and it's kind of like, like this cultural thing. And I'd never really noticed it before. And um, one thing was a few weeks later, I was in my friend's WhatsApp group and I was talking about the lyrics of a female songwriter. And I was like, genius. And the first thing back was someone questioning, oh no, it's just, that's just a really obvious oh, lyric. <laughs> you know? And I was like, that's fascinating. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, wow. I really had just not even considered that as it being a kind of, you know, gender bias um, thing. But yeah, yeah just really yeah. fascinating. 
It is fascinating. And and there, you know, it's interesting there. I can't remember where the study was done now, but there was a, a study looking at um, uh, different academic disciplines that tend to be more male and female dominated. And, you know, we tend to think of men are more likely or at least more likely to have careers in science and women more likely to have careers in the humanities. Um, but what's fascinating is there are certain fields like philosophy where men are much more common um, and even though that's in the humanities, but philosophy, like physics, like software engineering, a couple of different areas where we think people have to be genius to do it, right? Whereas women are less likely to go into these careers that are described as genius. Um, um, pe- I'm not saying that you're not a genius if you go in the social sciences, but it's not a, a word that's associated with that, whereas genius is associated with um, more male-dominated fields. Interesting. And you you talk about a thing called the Harvard Implicit Association Test. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a way that you can um, basically check for unconscious biases. Um, Is it is that just around gender? Is that is that a much wider um, unconscious bias test as well? It's it's much wider. Have you ever taken one? I've never done it, but I saw I wrote it down today because I was thinking, oh, I'm going to I'm going to do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, when you've got some free time, um, you know, they take about 10 minutes, um, but they do have them across a variety. So I, I'm not a, associated with Harvard at all on, on this. So, but it is a free test um, and your data would go into their data banks, and but they let you know that if you want to do it. But what's fabulous is, is they've got at least 10 different tests where you can discover, you, you basically need to take 10 minutes, but you're going to discover how biased you are relative to all the other people who've taken that test. And they've, they've got hundreds, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people who've yeah. taken these and they'll give you your data at the end. You don't, you know, you don't have to wait for the report. They give it to you right away. They'll let you know, where do you stand relative to other people? And they give you, you know, you have options. You can, you can, they've got a couple on gender bias. They've got a few on race. They've got them on how do you view Muslims, for instance? How do you view thin people versus heavy people? Um, how do you view people who are full abled versus people who have disabilities so you and you get to pick ahead of time which of these things you want to do um and it's you know i i've got to say i have taken a couple of them now and there are some where i'm like i can't be that biased i'm gonna take it again (laughs) 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 and what's beautiful is you can do it again and then you get almost the same score and it's like (laughs) oh no no you know so uh, i i highly recommend it it's a very humbling experience yeah in um in my book study ninja i i researched and listed a number of different biases and i can't remember what it's called but there is a bias which basically says even when you are aware of biases, you will still be biased, right? So yes. even when, you, you know, you you look at these things and, and know that bias is something that 90% of people have and you know that you have biases, you will still then just do, do things exactly the same. Yeah, you know, I, I really like, um, uh, there's a, 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 she used to be chair of the psychology department. Um, her name is Banaji. She has this great analogy that I really like around unconscious bias. Her, her observation is, is, is exactly what you're saying, that just because you know about unconscious bias doesn't mean you're free from it. She said, you know, there's this unrealistic expectation that if we learn about unconscious bias, it will go away. We'll, we will now be um, uh, more enlightened and we won't have unconscious bias. She said, but that's like expecting that if you go to a talk on um, how we burn calories and how we burn fat, that you'll suddenly like lose weight, right? Yeah. You know, just, just yeah. because you understand how it works doesn't mean that your internal machinery has changed. It just means you're now aware of it, but you still need to take extra steps for any change to happen. 
Yeah, we've had a big problem in, um, well, there's a couple of big problems in our big political parties here where, oh. um, uh, and I'm I'm saying that for balance, the one that the media covers all the time is the Labour Party having a big problem with anti-Semitism. Oh, um, sure. Actually, the Conservative Party have an equally big problem with Islamophobia, but the media just don't talk about that. I wonder who oh, fund, I wonder who funds the media, but that's another story. Exactly. But right. the Labour leader recently was being um, interviewed about this review into anti-Semitism, and he is on a big campaign. The current Labour leader to really stamp it out, and um, mm. I think to his credit, has taken some quite um, he's taken some some quite big action. Um, you know, in in order to to try and make the point that he is on this crusade to. Um, to sort of stamp out, um, you know, like anti-Semitism, but also other, um, you know, racism or biases within the party. And someone asked him, oh, um, what action are you taking internally? And he said, oh, um, everybody internally has been on this unconscious bias training. And the uh, interviewer said, and how long was the training? And he was like, well, it was two hours. And it was like, oh, so you think that you're just, everything's fixed if, um, if everyone just fixed. goes on a course right. for two hours, you know, so yeah. there is... There is a sense where that needs to be the starting point rather than the end point. But exactly right. I just, it's, it's, I just thought it was quite a funny. Uh, it was a it was a funny moment that the the questioner managed to uncover. I really I really like that reality test. Two hours, two hours, and that's it. We've got oh. about ten minutes left, and I'd love to just talk to you more about um, the work that you do. So you the um, you were the founding director of something called the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. Um, at Seattle University. So I'd love to just know about um, how that came about and and what do you do at the the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning? Sure. Well, you know, I I, I have so much admiration there in the UK. You you take um, higher education and, uh, you know, we, we, we take higher education seriously here, but there you really take it seriously about university professors and making sure that they're good at their work and you take it more seriously than we do. Um, but I... I got into, I used to be a university professor for the, the beginning of my career. And I realized I wanted to, I wanted to think about how do you help other professors get good at their jobs? How do you go from, how do I, can I help people go from being a good professor to being your favorite professor? And um, because, yeah, you know, it's, it's one thing to be good for the 30 or 50 students in your class. It's another thing to help professors across the university get good at what they do. And um, and there are jobs like that. And so I um, I moved into that line of work. Uh, in, in the U.S., it's called faculty development. And I think in the U.K., it's called higher education development. And basically what that work involves is I sit down with faculty, with university professors all the time. And sometimes they're in law, sometimes they're in nursing, sometimes they're in philosophy. It's across the university. And I work with them to figure out how can they teach better. And so that involves a lot of feedback. Um, I've been doing that since about 2000. So I've had about 20 years now of giving a lot of feedback so, to help those professors be smarter in their classrooms. And some of those conversations are easy and wonderful. And some of them are hard because mm -hmm. a person is seeking feedback, but they don't really want it. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> we've, we've all been there. We think we want to know, but we don't once we hear it. Um, anyway, and it's fabulous work. I, I really, I, it's very fulfilling. And I'm, I've had a chance to see some professors really um, go from being average to exceptional. And I, I feel really lucky to be part of that work. It sounds like um, one of those jobs where there would always be more to do. And your relationship with busy 
um, might be a tricky one. So um, just tell us about that and, you know, how, how you manage your relationship with busy. Oh, you're right. And that, and that is, that is, that is managing your relationship with busy. What a wonderful way to put it. It is, it is work where there's always more to do and the better you are at your job, the more people seek you out. Um, And so <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, g- getting good at the job has its has uh, co- <laughs> complicating consequences. Some definitely, just, yeah, prof- professional um, dilemmas and so on. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and I, I think for me, uh, a part of that job was to figure out which parts of the job I enjoy most. Can I carve the work out so that I'm getting to do the parts of the work that I enjoy most? I enjoy research and writing, and I enjoy working one on one with people. That's the, my favorite part of the job. Yeah. Um, as as founding director, um, I was also pulled into meetings you 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 want to show off if you're building a new library you want to have the director of teaching and learning mm, there right yeah. e- even if that's just someone who's nodding along at at the table um and so i i tried to move out of fewer of those um basically where i was just a, a token in the room so you were like the lord mayor of seattle university <laughs> no hardly but i was maybe the lord mayor of uh teaching and learning right, at, least, yeah. at least how it was learned how it was viewed um so so I, I really enjoy that work and and but the but the productivity for me in terms of productivity tips right um for me, setting aside large blocks of time whenever I can get them to write and, and figuring out for me when my best time is for certain yeah. tasks. Yeah. So I, I try to do meetings in the morning and my writing and research in the afternoon because I find that from ah. I do my best I do my best writing from three to six that those words work on the page the first time. Um, whereas if I try to write at nine in the morning or 10 in the morning, I'm rewriting and rewriting. Um, uh, I, I, I I'm not sure that my meetings are my best in the morning, but they, they don't seem to suffer nearly as much as my writing does. Um, so for me, is that something that you find? Do you dial in certain times of the day? Yeah, do I, I, I do exactly the same in principle, but exactly the opposite in practice to you. So my mornings are my, I, I label as the create time. My morning time is the writing and then the afternoon time is the meetings. And um, yeah, so we're, we're kindred spirits in our sports teams and then um, actually polar opposites in terms of which <laughs> times of the day work best for our writing. But um, I yeah. find that um, with having to make those choices and compromises, mm-hmm. like you say, I think I'd rather a meeting go from being 100% of what it could be to being 90% because actually usually 90% of a meeting is good enough. Whereas with writing, there's such a difference between when you feel 100% on your game and when you feel at 90%, it's like the difference is so huge. And I think for me sometimes, you know, I've, I, I I don't know if you get this, but I sometimes feel a bit guilty if I'm, if, if I know people need time in my diary and I'm, you know, steadfastly defending my time boundaries around, um, you know, when I need that writing time, I feel really guilty about that. But it, it is so important, isn't it? When you've got something like writing that, um, you know, you do just need to prioritize your energy for. You do, you do. And and for me, at least, you know, um, when I think about some of the least successful feedback conversations that I've had where I've had a meeting with someone, it's often a mistake that I'm making. I'm having it at 4 p.m. in the afternoon um, and I'm tired and this person needs me to be a great listener, right? right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And instead, instead, they're just sucking out all of my energy. Um, and so I'm not able to be, because I'm not coming into it fresh. And so I, I do think um, that I'm doing people a favor by saying, you know, 
I need to have my meetings done by three, if at all possible, if they're, if they're meetings that matter. Again, if I'm just a token head in the room, I can, I can do that at three o'clock or four o'clock. But um, in, in terms of my actually being able to give good feedback and be the kind of listener you expect to show up, um, I'm going to do that better earlier in the day. Um, so so I, I, I do think, but I know that there are probably some of your listeners who think, gosh, Therese, that's a luxury. I don't, I don't get to set my agenda <laughs> or I don't get to set my schedule the way that, I, that it sounds like you do. So I, I, you know, I, th- I think trying to find ways to take control of your time is so important. Yes. And I think that's the sliding scale, right? So we probably both have quite a high level of autonomy over our time, but I would say that everybody has some level of autonomy, mm. even if that's an hour a day or h- half an hour of your day that you can control yourself. Right. Um, right. I think what you do with that and how, you know, how you, how you try and organize that, you know, that can make a huge difference, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to communicate that, you know, to, to the people, to your boss, to, to say, you know, um, if, if I can have my first two hours of my day to, work on my reports or I can spend my first two hours getting that data done. Mm. I, I'm going to be so much more effective at what you need me to do for the rest of the day. Um, um, often bosses are like, okay, well, if you figured that out, let's try it. Right. And, yeah. and people can be more receptive to that if you can articulate it. Um, final question for you, which is um, I often describe productivity ninja the book as like a rod for my own back because then it becomes oh graham has to be productive all the time so do you feel like with this book and obviously your your work around feedback um do you feel like it creates a rod for your own back where you're never allowed to be the person who gives bad feedback or (laughs) um or isn't on, on top of your game when it comes to those things well, I, you know, I don't know if this happens for you. That the 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 key hesitation I had when I was going to write this book at the beginning was I was dreading those moments where I'll be giving a talk and someone will have a question and basically they're going to present to you their very hardest feedback situation ever. Yeah, right, say, yeah, they're going to say, well, yeah. "What would you do if?" Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was dreading that. I was just like, "Oh, these you know people are. I'm, it's going to come out of the woodwork. The hardest of all the possible feedback situations." So there's, for me, there's that concern is that I'm, I'm going to get all these questions that where people try to stump me, um, you know, try to stump the feedback giver. Uh, but, but I usually find that it's hard, to, you know, um, we, you can't be an armchair feedback giver. You can't just like slide in and say, here's what you need to do and slide back out, right? But usually there's a relationship. Is there a good relationship or there's not a good relationship? Um, have, I, have I been giving you recognition and appreciation all along? So now you're, you're comfortable hearing where you stand and it's not quite where you need to be. Um, so anyway, I, I really like, I really like the way that you frame, um, you know, what do you want to get good at? Because people are going to expect you to be good at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And, and with me, my next book's about kindness. So I kind of feel like not only have I, oh. not only do I have to be on time to everything now, but I have to be super kind in every situation of my life. So oh, what man. am I doing? I, you know, it's it's going to get stressful, isn't it? It's going to get stressful. You're going to have two hours a day where you interact with the world. You know, those are your kind Indeed. hours, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, it's been lovely having you on Beyond Busy. Um, and before we go, do you want to just tell people where they can connect with you and find out more about your work? And, and Yeah, sure. So you can find me at TheresaHouston.com. Um, and I'm sure Grandma put my name in the, the podcast notes so you'll be, see how to spell that and and then my book um, is being published in the UK by Penguin 
on Random House. So you'll be able to find it at your favorite bookseller. And I'd love for you to pick it up and let me know. My, my, you can email me. My email's on my website. And I'd love to hear what parts of the book work for you and what parts don't. And presumably you'll be reading all of the feedback that comes in the form of Amazon That's, reviews, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, you know, I'll probably skip the reviews where people say, you know, it didn't ship on time, right? I'll skip those, but, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I pay, pay attention to the others. I'm, I, I'm true to my word. I love feedback. Amazing. Um, Therese, thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy. Oh, you're such a delight. Thank you, Graham. Really enjoyed that. And uh, just before we finish, because my throat is absolutely just dying, so I'm not going to do a big long spiel here, but I, I just have to give two thank yous before we finish. Um, first is to, to Teresa. So um, she asked me at the end of our conversation if she could send me a thank you card and what was my address. And I said, oh, that'd be great because my gran collects stamps and she loves getting the foreign stamps. And so, you know, when your card arrives, it's going to be really great to have a nice picture stamp. And Teresa kind of took that as a little challenge. She sent me this whole little envelope full of like picture stamps from uh, the States with like, you know, uh, there's some with like famous screen actors on, there's some with really exotic looking birds on them and stuff. And just this whole array of different stamps. So I'm thrilled with it and my gran is going to love it. And uh, that's really cool. So thank you to Teresa for doing that. And um, do you know what? We don't get enough of that sort of, you know, physical mail and just like physical stuff. Everything's so digital now that when you get them, they're just so exciting. So um, really nice to receive a a lovely thank you card and stamps. uh, And uh, yeah, just really made my day when that arrived uh, just a few days ago, actually. And the second thank you is to my producer on the show, Mark Stedman. Um, This is actually the final episode that Mark is going to be producing. Uh, We're moving to a new producer who is part of our team, Riz Paredes, who will be taking it over next week. Um, And so this is like the end of a bit of an era, really. So we've just passed our 100th episode. But Mark has been really at my side with this podcast from day one. And his platform, Podient, is where we host the podcast as well. So literally everything from the format to the technical setup to the editing, like he's really just been such a mine of useful information, such a resource, such a support. And I've really loved working with him. So um, we will still be on Podient. Uh, Mark will be putting his time into um, lots of other stuff. So is no longer going to be producing each of the episodes, but I'm sure we'll still be a friend and a fan of this podcast as well as um, a host obviously through Podium as well so just want to say thank you Mark it's been amazing um, working with you I know we will continue to uh, you know to work with each other and to send send people each other's direction and all that sort of stuff but just want to say a massive thank you to to Mark Stedman and everybody at Podium. Um, this episode is sponsored by Think Productive so if you want productivity training and coaching go to thinkproductive.com And as always, you can get all the show notes, all the links to previous episodes, including our three-part Beyond Busy 100. It's all at getbeyondbusy.com. If you want to sign up for my weekly email, it is just uh, go to graymalcott.com forward slash links and you'll find it on there amongst a few other things. And that's it. We've got a huge guest next week. Seth Godin is our guest next week on Beyond Busy. So, um, Make sure you're subscribed and uh, strap in for that one. It's a good one. Uh, we're talking about his book, The Practice. So until then, I hope you're uh, keeping well. I'm going to get myself better because my throat is killing me and I just feel awful. 
and um, I'm, sh- I'm sure that by next week I'll be feeling a bit brighter than I probably sound here so take care see you next week bye for now Thank you.